Okay, so now can science save humanity? I don't know about you, but this is such a big question. It's such a big problem. I just cannot fit this problem into my head. My brain is just not built to cope with. So let's break this down to one hour. So we all file out those doors in about one hour's time. How will the world be different? Well, for starters, there will be about... 9,000 additional people on the planet. 9,000 births over deaths. That's 9,000 extra mouths, and if you're lucky, multiplied by three meals per day. 9,000 bottoms doing what bottoms do. Let's look at some of the other statistics. So each one of those people, if you live lifestyles like you and I, that's 9,000 people wanting houses, homes, schools, police forces, roads, trips to Europe, mobile phones, flat screen TVs, cars, trips to Europe. And in the course of this next hour, we will have approximately 600 hectares of land deforestated. 600 hectares in one hour. Uh, Deserts, about 300 hectares. Soil erosion, and we've already heard from uh, our, one of our panellists here, Michael Jeffrey, 700 hectares of land across the planet affected by soil erosion. Carbon dioxide, 4 million tonnes. Um, will might correct me, but that's the number I understand. It is of that order. 4 million tonnes in one hour will be emitted in the next hour. Now, oil... Oil is not something we talk very much about, but our civilization runs on oil, and the number is just quite unbelievable. I can't even fit the number for one hour, so how about this? One second. Just count it. One second. Gone. That's 1,000 barrels of oil consumed. 1,000 barrels in one second. And a lot of that's going to go up into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, and of course, It'll do other things like make mobile phones, 3D printers, and other useful things. Uh, That is our oil. And oil is a finite reserve. And I've already held up a block of coal, and we know the story about coal and carbon dioxide and our rush to pump this into the atmosphere as fast as we can possibly go. Now, this is a big problem, and it is a daunting problem, but we have some fairly significant thinkers out the front here to help us through this today. Can science save humanity? I'd like to introduce our first guest now, Captain Cook, when he explored these waters 200 and something years ago, right? He's operating a complicated system. He's got masts, he's got rigging, he's got navigation, he's got food supplies. It's a technical system, right? And how is that system performing. Well, you have people, you have instruments who would tell you what is happening to that system. Now, our first guest is Professor Will Stephan, who is well known to many of you as a prominent climate scientist here in Australia. And uh, he is an earth system scientist at the ANU and outspoken on the subject of global warming and climate change. He is adjunct professor at the University of Canberra and the Canberra Urban and Regional Futures. So, Will, welcome to our panel today. Uh, what is the current situation with global warming? Where are we headed right now? 
Well, right now we've uh, increased the global average temperature um, upwards of uh, 0.85 degrees Celsius since pre-industrial, uh, rising rapidly, but that's just a general figure that indicates the state of the climate system. Probably more important is that we've changed a lot of extreme weather events, made them worse. And we see this in Australia and right around the globe. Uh, extreme heat's happening much more frequently than it did before. Uh, we're seeing high fire danger weather in the south east of Australia on the increase. Uh, sea levels have risen, so we've seen increased coastal flooding. Sydney and Fremantle, for example, where we have long-term records. Uh, coastal flooding has occurred three times as frequently in the second half of the 20th century as the first half, uh, so on and so on. So there's no doubt that the climate system is being destabilized. We're seeing lots of uh, factors in the climate system that are now outside the normal bounds of variability. And also there's no doubt, uh, as, as Rod said, what the primary cause is, and that's the release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere from human activities. Uh, and 90% of that now is coming from fossil fuel combustion, about 10% from deforestation. All right, that's the state of play. The challenge is uh, we're running out of time to get this thing stabilized. The policy target is a 2 degrees Celsius rise, a bit more than double from what we've seen. Uh, given the momentum in the system, we're probably already committed to a degree and a half, even if we could magically cut emissions to zero tomorrow. So time is running out. We're heading up to Paris uh, at the end of the year. Uh, that's all the bad news. The good news is some major players are actually taking this seriously. The United States has greatly ramped up its ambition on climate change. So has China. The EU has always, always been an active player. You take those three together, and if everyone took that level of ambition, we'd have a fighting chance of, of stabilizing at two degrees. We're not there yet, uh, but it's better than it looked five years ago. And then, of course, there are countries like ours uh, which are lagging way behind. Uh, we, we can hope. Now, now, global warming is a lot more than just a few sunny days at the beach, right? It affects every system across the planet almost. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I've been talking mainly about uh, human systems, but of course it affects lots of other things. It affects agriculture, Michael could talk about that, but it affects plants and animals, uh, biological diversity. In fact, if we let climate change get out of control and go towards uh, 4 to 5 degrees temperature rise towards the end of the century, uh, we'll definitely see the sixth mass extinction event in Earth's history. Uh, one out of six species is project projected to go extinct if we don't get this under control. So it's, it, it's a complete change of state of the entire Earth's system. Uh, and, of course, we as a part of the Earth's system uh, will be uh, enormously affected. But not only us, the rest of the living world, too, will be affected. Now, now Will, one of the things that's uh, played upon in the, in the political debate here is... Uh, Uncertainty. How much uncertainty do we have in this field? Uh, not much uncertainty at all in terms of uh, the nature of the problem and what's causing it. That's extremely well known. The uncertainties are, are looking toward the future uh, and how bad is it going to get how fast. And I would uh, emphasize that uncertainties cut both ways. Uh, we could be underestimating how fast the Earth system could change as well as overestimating. So it depends on how you evaluate risk. When we look at the uh, projected impacts at a three or four degree world, even taking the conservative estimates, they're pretty horrific. Uh, and as an Earth system scientist, what we tend to downplay uh, often in the public commentary are the so-called tipping elements, loss of the big polar ice sheets, uh, flipping of, of modes of ocean circulation and so on, the so-called jokers in the pack. We have no way yet as scientists to estimate very well where we may hit these tipping points. Uh, but if we do, the system's uh, going to get out of control. So it's, uh, it's, it's a worrying situation now. Captain Cook, when he was in these wards, he didn't just have to operate the ship and the sails and the mast and the rigging and, and those sort of things. 
he had to deal with people. He had crew, uh, he had his people back in England that he had to deal with, and he encountered the, uh, the peoples of the Pacific Islands on the route. And, of course, this situation that we now face is not just about a few degrees of warming, it's not about you know, just ocean currents, because it affects all of us. It affects you and me, but it's going to affect other people perhaps a lot more than you and I, and one person who has this focus uh, is an epidemiologist, and uh, she has been going to some vulnerable communities across the world uh, with people who are going to be affected directly and indirectly by uh, global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so Professor Hilary Bambrick joins us from University of Western Sydney. She is a, an epidemiologist... Now, she tells me that an epidemiologist looks at the health across a population. And her work focuses on the impacts of climate change in those communities. And she is the chair of population health at the School of Medicine at the University of Western Sydney. Now, Hilary, what kind of effects can we expect out of these changes? Thanks, Rod. Um, well, as humans, we're not isolated from our environment, so we'll outline some of the things that are going on. Through its effects on water, food and air, climate change alters the relationship between us and our life support system. The health consequences of climate change are many. Uh, for example, deaths and injury from heat waves, flooding and bushfires, mosquito-borne diseases such as malaria and dengue, and even food insecurity and conflict. Now, in Australia, we're very well resourced to deal with climate change. We're healthy. Uh, we have robust emergency response and health systems. And we can also add a tax levy to rebuild after major flooding, for example. But climate change is not fair, as Rod alluded to. So other countries are not so lucky. Uh, poverty, poor health, ecosystem degradation, uh, limited infrastructure and services, they, these things render some populations extremely vulnerable and diminishes their capacity to adapt. So the worst consequences of climate change fall disproportionately on the world's poor, Already marginal regions will become decreasingly hospitable and those living there are least able to adapt. So climate change acts against economic development and will keep vulnerable people in poverty and exacerbate existing health and economic inequalities. And the health consequences that are the easiest ones to measure, such as deaths from the recent Middle East heat dome um, or when temperatures in London exceed around about 23 degrees, um, these are not the biggest impacts in terms of numbers of people affected. So the biggest impacts are actually going to come from things that are much less direct and much more complex. So things like um, repeated crop failures that trigger famine, sea level rise contaminating water supplies and even um, consuming whole countries, wars and civil unrest over increasingly scarce resources, forced migration and deaths at sea, um, and as with public health more generally, prevention is far simpler than, and cheaper than cure. So we've known for decades what, what's causing the earth to warm and we've known for decades what we should be doing about it. So we have the evidence and we have the technology, but the question we're here to answer today is can science save humanity? Um, and with all the recent defunding of research in this country, I think we actually have to ask whether humanity will save science. So... <laughs> 
So firstly, I think for science to have a fighting chance, we actually have to trust the evidence. We have to stop giving disproportionate airtime to those with vested interests in outdated and polluting industries. Um, as Will said, the consensus for climate change is in, and it's at more than 99%. Now, I don't know about you, but if my doctor told me I had a 5% chance of developing some hideous disease unless I stopped a particular habit, I'd be stopping that habit in a heartbeat. Um, but with more than 99% certainty, we still have our addiction to coal. And it's not like we don't have healthy alternatives, so we don't have to wait years to reap the benefits. Um, quitting coal this morning means cleaner air and better health this afternoon, and it really is as simple as that. Secondly, we have to stop treating the economy as if it were an angry deity that must be constantly appeased with sacrificial offerings, lest it get a bit tetchy and smite a few mining billionaires. So if politicians worried about the health and livelihoods of the people that they govern as much as they worry about the health of the economy in the coming quarter, we wouldn't be in this mess. Now, thirdly, to take up um, what we have to do is take up the economic opportunities and run with them. And I know some of the other panellists will be talking about this. So it's, it, a clean, green economy is not about job loss. It's about managing economic transition. And the di divestment movement is showing us that coal and gas are becoming untenable. But we might need to have a little bit of a nudge along the way to actually promote um, investment in renewable um, technologies to make them um, happen sooner, promote faster returns and drive this technological development. And Australia is very well placed to do this. So in, instead, you know, we seem hell-bent on propping up a withering coal industry, defunding clean energy technology and running interference with endless reviews about wind farms. But rather than continuing to subsidise the problem, we actually have to start subsidising solutions. So my, my feeling is that we can save humanity and create a better world, but it does require more than science. It requires heretical thinking. And it requires the decision to place the value of human health and well-being and the, and the planet on which we depend above short-term economic growth. And for that, it requires politicians with a vision to lead this great transition. Well, you, you, you've summarised our panel very, ni very, very nicely there, Hilary. We have plenty more. In fact, I'm holding a lump of coal in my hand. I'm not going to burn this. I'm going to bury it when I get home. Now, uh, have you seen the movie Gladiator? Now, in, in that movie, there's this fantastic opening sequence. It's the glistening afternoon sunlight, and the hand is running through the tops of the field of the wheat. And before he goes into battle, our hero of the movie, uh, Russell, the Russell Crowe character, he leans down and he picks up a handful of soil and he runs it through his fingers. Now, I don't know that our next guest will call himself a warrior, but uh, he is an advocate and very passionate about the role of soils in Australia. And he is, in fact, the former Governor-General of Australia, former uh, Governor of Western Australia, and a graduate of the Royal Military College, Duntroon, where he then joined the infantry. And, in fact, he is also the recipient of the Military Cross and the South Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry. So, uh, Michael Jeffrey, welcome to the panel. And uh, you could have had a nice, quiet retirement and, and enjoyed the fruits of, a, of an amazing career, but you've thrown yourself into the topic of soils. Why, why, why is that? Well, my wife's asked exactly the same question as she heads off to golf and bridge and all that sort of thing. But uh, I guess the, the real concern that I have is in the uh, future of our ten grandchildren. When I retired as GG... I looked at a number of things and was given a number of tasks to do, but it seemed to me that one of the great problems that this planet is going to face in the coming years and, uh, and, and in the very near future 
is how it's going to produce sufficient food and clean water for it to survive, working on the basis that uh, the population has got to go from 7 billion now to about nearly 10 billion by 2050. And in, this, and in the process, there's almost a, uh, going to have to double its uh, food production. Now, I realise that technology and, and GMs and all that sort of thing may have a better redistribution of food, etc., may well have an impact on that. But it seems to me that we do have a problem unless we really look after our soil. And what we're seeing around the planet today is uh, soils that are being... Uh, degraded or destroyed in uh, quite large part. Indeed, across the planet, I think we're losing almost 1% of our arable land per year, which is a lot of land. And when you look at the water situation, particularly for agriculture, and agriculture generally consumes about 70% or more of uh, potable water for its purposes, uh, the great food bowls in India, Africa, Middle East and uh, parts of the United States, California for example, China, are drawing their water for agriculture in large part from underground aquifers that were established over geological time. In other words, they're irreplaceable. And so that water is a finite resource and it is rapidly running out. Then you look at the river systems in many of these countries and take China for example where they're passing through or near uh, heavy populations, those rivers like the Yangtze, Yellow River and so on are not uh, only just degraded and uh, uh, unhealthy in in that sense, uh, but they're also uh, poison in some of those rivers. The fish don't even survive. In Tibet, the headwaters of the Mekong, for example, are being dammed by China, which is going to flow, have impact on the flows of the Mekong down through, uh, down through uh, uh, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia and so on. So the water situation uh, across the, the, the planet is in the big food required areas is, is, is very, very serious. And in Australia... Um, Although we've got problems of uh, soil land degradation, about 50%, perhaps a little more, of our agricultural landscape is degraded in some form, particularly in loss of carbon. About a million kilometres of our streams and rivers are are degraded and they've been excised so that they're flowing below their floodplains. About 60% of our wetlands, even on the Murray, which are the kidneys of a river system, have been filled in or urbanised. So we have difficulties in Australia, but the big thing was we had the solutions. But the thing that I want to point about about soil health in Australia, I guess if you had to ask yourself which is, a key, which is the possibly the key ingredient that we're deficient in, it is probably carbon. I know there are other things, nitrogen and so on and so forth, but carbon is one, and it's uh, putting carbon back into the soil that, that is required. When we look at water in Australia, sometimes I think we're putting the focus in the wrong areas. We're putting the focus in the 2% of water in our dams, the 10% of water in our rivers, and the 2% of water that runs off the roads and the roofs, 14%. And we're ignoring the other 86% largely, of which only 36% is actually getting into the soil and into the root zones where it does its job. 50% is going up there, 
because it cannot filtrate the soils. And it cannot filtrate the soils primarily because of lack of carbon in those soils and also runoff and other, other things. So we really have to look at that evaporation rate of huge quantities of water that we need to retain in the soils. Now, do we have the answers? Yes, I believe we do. Yes, sir. there are many facets to this story, aren't there? Now, our next guest has seen this problem from the tops of the trees and from the grassroots, and in fact, he did his PhD in the Pacific Islands looking at alternative sources of energy, and that's a very grassroots thing, and in fact, his current work is very much at the grassroots with beyond zero emissions. But at the treetops, he's also been involved with setting uh, carbon pricing at the OECD, uh, worked on the renewable energy target. Remember that? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, we hope. Uh, Dr Stephen uh, Bygrave is the Chief Executive Officer of Beyond Zero Emissions. And uh, I'm guessing, Stephen, that Beyond Zero Emissions exists as an organisation because we can't wait for politicians. Would that be right? That's part of it, yes. And I'll elaborate a bit more. <laughs> so, now, now a lot of this is an energy problem. Uh, to tell us about the work of Beyond Zero Emissions and how you see this problem. Yeah, look, thank you. And uh, in terms of the question, can science save humanity, I, I was thinking about this, certainly a yes answer. The, the question really is, will um, science save humanity? We've, we've had knowledge around climate change for over two decades We've had a lot of uh, information about climate change and the impacts, and we don't actually have time to wait for any more science to come in. Um, the, the story is clear. We need to act now. And we can do that with the knowledge that we have and also with the technologies we have. We have to act in the next few minutes, few days, few years, and even that's too late because to wait for some technological breakthrough or some new scientific breakthrough... Uh, the game is all over. We'll, we'll mention the target of two degrees uh, warming by the end of the century, which has essentially been agreed by scientists and also many international leaders. What two degrees warming means, actually, is zero emissions. It means actually moving beyond zero emissions by the second half of the century. And that's going to be a, a challenging task for humanity, but it can be done. We've shown that we can have an electricity grid based on 100% renewable energy. That's technically possible. It's uh, expensive, but investments in electricity need to be made regardless. Um, We have ageing electricity infrastructure, and uh, if we're to rebuild our infrastructure in the electricity sector, we can do it with renewables. In fact, many are saying now that new renewables are cheaper than new coal and new gas. So, in fact, it is economic to make these changes, certainly renewable energy. Um, If you have a grid based on 100% renewable energy, it means you can power things like high-speed rail, which this country doesn't have yet, but should have. We can power things like high-speed rail um, with 100% renewable energy, zero emissions technology. It means we can charge electric vehicles with electricity that's based on 100% renewable energy. So um, we can actually do this. Um, The cost, people always mention the costs. So high-speed rail, if we took the money being invested in Badgerys Creek and the east-west link, if that ever happens, that would build half the high-speed rail system between Sydney and Melbourne. 
and people say there's no demand for high-speed rail. Well, Sydney, Melbourne is the fifth busiest, number five, the fifth busiest air route in the world. Sydney, Brisbane is the 13th busiest air route in the world. So these air routes in Australia actually are equivalent to the busiest air routes in Asia. Well, I wanted to introduce our next guest, and he comes from an academic background where they can comprehend terms like input-output model and quantitative easing. I'm not sure anybody knows what that is, but uh, I don't think he particularly likes me referring to this, but his actually academic background historically is in economics. And we know how economics is used in our society and how it's used as a tool in political decision-making. But he's since moved on and written a series of books with daunting titles, the most recent being Earth Masters. The other one's Affluenza, uh, Scorcher, and this one is Gloomy, uh, Requiem for a Species. So Professor Clive Hamilton is a professor of, of ethics at uh, Charles Sturt University, and he joins us here today on the panel. And Clive... Why did you start writing these sort of books? What motivated you to move on from straight economics into was somewhat different feel, or am I not classifying economics the way you would? Well, I mean, uh, I moved away from economics because it's boring um, <laughs> and because it can't answer the big questions. And, uh, but uh, I wrote the books, that you, more recent ones you mentioned, uh, in response to the kind of um, information that will just uh, beautifully outline because we're in an extremely perilous situation. And it seems to me that there is no more important issue for anyone with two brain cells to rub together than to think about climate change and what we should do about it because it imperils us all. And so when it comes to the question, can science save humanity, I've actually direct uh, my last book, Earth Masters, um, Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering, or its subtitle in Australia, um, Playing God with the Climate, goes directly to this question. And the answer is no, science cannot save humanity. Only politics can save humanity. And uh, it's a great kind of temptation to um, go down the um, techno-fix route and say, well, what we need is the scientists and engineers to come up with an answer because the politicians are hopeless and so let's forget about them and uh, you know, cut through with some grand new technology that will render the politicians uh, irrelevant. And when we look at uh, the, uh, the geoengineering, various proposals to interfere with, take control of the climate system, we see exactly why this is such a perilous way of thinking. Um, because geoengineering, as I'm sure you know, is a whole a range of techniques, um, probably the dominant uh, versions of which are sulphate aerosol spraying, coating the earth in a layer of uh, sulphate particles up in the stratosphere to reduce the amount of solar radiation reaching the planet and thereby effectively turning down the thermostat, cooling the earth. And the second kind of um, headline measure has been ocean iron fertilisation, adding iron slurry to the oceans so that you promote um, algal blooms which suck CO2 out of the atmosphere um, and then bury it deep in the oceans. That's the idea. In other words, to, so these ideas which have got a very substantial now scientific and uh, commercial constituency are aimed at uh, substituting a techno-fix for the socio-fix or the politico-fix. But in fact, all of these uh, so-called scientific solutions just open up new and in some ways more difficult 
our political problems. So let me just talk um, in my remaining three minutes about the politics of the techno fix in, in relation to geoengineering. Let me just pose a couple of questions. Who should do the research into geoengineering uh, techniques? Should it be uh, the scientists with their noble neutrality? Um, well, that sounds all very well, but who's scientists? US scientists, Australian scientists, China's scientists, Russia's scientists, they're doing quite a lot of work over there, North Korea's scientists, should they be doing the research into uh, geoengineering? Um, who should fund it? Uh, governments, that's good, uh, but which government? Any one of those? Uh, what we're seeing now is some commercial outfits starting to fund geoengineering. Uh, we're now seeing some billionaires like uh, Bill Gates and uh, Richard Branson starting to fund geoengineering research. Uh, billionaires with a messiah complex. I think that's pretty clear, particularly in the case of Richard Branson. He imagined himself as the man who saved the world. And so he's funding a whole bunch of... of um, well, actually offering this huge prize. You know, whoever who can come up with a technology that will save the world. He set up the Carbon War Room use technology to bypass politics. Um, Tim Flannery's uh, become one of his uh, strong supporters, leading to his latest book that uh, are, are likely to come out. This kind of alluring idea that billionaire-funded techno-fixers will save the world. But it's very dangerous, because when we look at who else is coming in behind geoengineering, we see a whole range of conservative forces, a bunch of uh, climate deniers in the United States, think tanks that have campaigned actively against climate uh, science for 10 or 15 years, some of them are now starting to say, hey, we support geoengineering. How can you support a technology to solve a problem you've just said for 10 years doesn't exist? Well, it's because the kind of solution geoengineering offers is one that's system compatible, one that works uh, with their ideology, one that allows big coal to keep on doing what it does, one that allows the system to keep on working, one that doesn't challenge consumers to change their lifestyle, it protects the American way of life. And so, of course, geoengineering is, is a, a techno-fix with as many politics as a carbon tax. Um, who should decide when to deploy the techno-fix when the time comes? Who decides when the time is necessary to deploy the sulphate shield in the, in the atmosphere? The UN? Yeah, the US, maybe. China? I think that's the most likely uh, uh, scenario. Uh, perhaps, the, uh, perhaps the Maldives. I mean, they're the nation in the world, one of the handful with the greatest... Um, moral justification for deploying geo, uh, geoengineering. The rich countries of the world aren't doing enough. They don't care about the Maldives sinking beneath the Indian Ocean. So why wouldn't this country try to preserve its existence by coating the earth in uh, sulphate aerosols? And if it all goes pear-shaped, who should decide to stop it? What if it's working quite well for China but it's uh, to stop the Indian monsoon, which is one of the suggestions it might do, so that Indians are dying in their millions. Who should decide? You've got conflict, global conflict. I mean, there's nothing more political than war. So, no, science cannot save humanity. Only humanity can save humanity.
Yes, in fact, uh, I was thinking after uh, coming up with the idea of this panel of saying, can humanity save humanity? In fact, you've, you've pinched that line from me now, Clive. But you, you've raised some rather provocative uh, thoughts there about the role of science and how we meddle with systems. So we prod this thing in some way or other, and it does what exactly? Uh, just chuck a ball or tennis ball across the room and watch it bounce, and who can predict exactly? It's the laws of physics, right? It, you know, the Newton's laws, bounce, reflection, angle, all that. It's a nicely controlled set, but you don't know where that ball is going to go. That's a tennis ball bouncing around a room. And the, the scale of the global climate system and our agricultural and our soil and our human system is vastly beyond any of this. And I wonder if any of our panellists would like to pick up on this point and how would you respond to, to that? I'll make a few comments. And, and, uh, my area of expertise is really earth system sciences, the science. And that's singular, earth system. It's a, sing, it's a single system. It operates as a complex system. Uh, we have very little uh, understanding, really, of how this system operates. We know some of the major processes, but importantly, we know it exists in well-defined states, and we're in one now that's the sweet spot for humanity. It's called the Holocene. It's been around for about 10,000 years. We didn't have agriculture before that because, it's, because the planet was too cold, uh, it was too erratic, the climate was too erratic, uh, and we simply couldn't uh, get past those constraints. The geoengineering that Clive's talking about is going to throw the system into a state uh, that none of us can really predict what's going to happen. If you put sulfate aerosols around, it'll be cooler. But rainfall will change in directions that cannot be predicted. Monsoon systems will change in directions that cannot be predicted. The oceans will continue to acidify uh, with massive, I mean massive impacts on marine biology, uh, which is at least as important as land biota and so on. In other words, we have no models and even no conceptual frameworks for saying, how is this going to reverberate through the system if we start fiddling with our own planetary life support system? So the dangers that he's talking about uh, are at least as dangerous as uh, climate change itself. So it really does leave us with no alternative but humanity saving humanity and start solving some of the fundamental problems that we have to face anyway uh, to live on this planet. Um, so, Michael Jeffrey, now soils are a major part of this system. Like, it's their carbon sink and so on. How do you see, or what do we know about how soils are going to be affected as the climate changes? Well, I think the big thing for us is to, is to do our best to restore the health of the soil so that we can reduce the impact of climate change or help to adjust to it. Uh, I would suggest that over the, uh, you know, since... Uh, uh, Countries, civilizations developed agriculture since they changed from going from nomadic lives to to uh, uh, more uh, urban uh, pursuits, uh, and developed agriculture to uh, to survive and to build uh, trade, so that countries could then build ships and armies and so on and so forth. By and large, what we've done is uh, destroyed a lot of the environmental balance. If you look at the Fertile Crescent, for example, if you look at the Romans in a thousand years when they, they destroyed so much of the, of the forests, etc., when they were dealing with the barbarians. And I would maintain that in the... But it probably took those civilizations, Mesopotamia and so on, Fertile Crescent probably took them six, seven, eight hundred years to do the damage that they did. 
But I suspect that what we're doing in agriculture now partly is a result of uh, population increase, which is vast. Uh, then perhaps we should be declaring them as national natural strategic assets, lifting the ball game. National assets, strategic assets, to be managed as strategic assets in an integrated way. Soil, which we call disparagingly dirt, uh, and, and it, you know, we tend to forget it, and it, it just sits out there and does its stuff, and we almost forget it. Now, you were saying that the Roman civilization was uh, catastrophically affected by the treatment that it gave to its soils. Yeah, well, that's right. But, uh, that's why I say I think we've got to develop a, a national philosophy that goes beyond the agricultural department putting something out on soil and mining putting something out on soil. Therefore, we've probably got to do two things, pay them a fair price for their product, but also reward them as primary carers of the agricultural landscape. 130,000 farmers looking after 60% of the continent on behalf of 23 million of we urban Australians. And we should be prepared to support them in doing that. That's actually a really good segue to my next question, which is to Hillary. And that is, uh, Hillary, you, now you've been to places like Ethiopia, and that's a name that really has a resonance for us of a certain age. When there was famine in, the, in that country, oh, what, 20, 30 years ago, now, we're talking about people who are very closely connected to their produce, right? To They see firsthand a lot of where their stuff comes from. Would you say that's true? So, certainly in the communities um, where I've been working, there might be urban communities, but they work very closely. Um, a lot of their food comes from food that they're actually producing themselves on you know, very small um, plots of land. Um, I guess one thing to think of here, th- these are people who are very much on the margins already, so um, life is fairly tenuous in terms of crops um, and it's, it's these, kind of, these kind of people, these kind of areas where, which are going to experience the, the greatest impacts of climate change on health. So, for example, um, the, the people we've been working with have been telling us it's getting hotter, it's getting harder to work during the day, it's getting much harder to produce our crops. We're much more likely to, um, to lose crops. Um, rain, rainfall has become... Um, less certain. And I, I want to stress this isn't just in Ethiopia. I've also worked in the Pacific as well and that's very much the story that's coming through there is that um, things, are, things are happening now, things are being seen now um, and for, for people to think of climate change as being something that's way off in the future um, it's, it's a huge mistake. I mean for anyone who was to, who was to visit sort of communities in, in areas that are already marginal will see that these things are actually happening now and the stories that people are telling um, about the, how the, the dry season is getting longer or they're getting less rain over the dry parts of the year and they're, they're losing crops. They're have to, having to come up with new ways of, um, to, dealing with the, to, deal with, um, to deal with climate change. They're actually experiencing this right now. And even to, to sort of put this in even um, more of a perspective, this is only at one, less than one degree warming. So this is what we're seeing already at less than one degree warming. We're aiming for two degrees. At the moment, we're on track for four degrees by the end of the century. And if you think about it, that's in the lifetime, I hope. So, you know, my children might live to see that. Your children might live to see that. Your grandchildren might live to see that. It's not something that's off in the far distant future. It's something that is actually, you know, well within our our, um, ability to sort of reason in time frame. And so, you know, there certainly are communities um, that are more marginal and that are experiencing these things right now. And, um, you know, things are actually very urgent um, for many people around the world. Hillary, like, um, I feel that I go to the supermarket this morning. Like, who had a good breakfast? I had a nice breakfast, went to the cupboard, and there was the food already. 
pull the milk out of the, out of the fridge and so on. But where did that come from? Where did the milk come from? Where did, the, where did my cereal come from? Actually, I don't really know, except it came from a supermarket and before it came from somewhere else. So, um, uh, Clive, I can feel that you want, wanted to chip in here. Yeah, I just wanted to, uh, to come back to an extremely important point that, that, that Will brought up, and I, I don't want us to, to pass over that, because it provides the, the framework, the context, uh, for the kinds of comments that... Uh, Michael and Hillary have been made, and Will talked about uh, this very short period of 10,000 years in the geological history of the Earth, which he referred to as the sweet spot. The last 10,000 years, the Holocene, um, represents an exceptionally stable and clement, clement period in Earth's climatic history. If you look back before that, it's characterised by huge, jagged uh, fluctuations of ice ages and interglacials, Uh, and it goes all over the place. But then things settled down and stabilised 10,000 years ago. Bear in mind, humans have been on the planet, modern humans, for only 200,000 years. And that stability of the climate in the Holocene, uh, because um, it allowed irrigated agriculture, also allowed civilization to develop. And what we're seeing now uh, in the last several decades, perhaps going back as much as 200 years, but particularly in the last several decades, the Earth has been bounced out of that um, clement uh, period of the Holocene into this new geological epoch, the Anthropocene, named after humankind, obviously, because human beings have now become the dominant geological force determining the future evolution of planet Earth. And if we uh, look at the uh, climatic projections, as Hillary said, we're currently on track for or possibly five degrees of warming. Some people say, well, you know, between now and 8 o'clock tonight, it will go down by 4 or 5 degrees, but we're talking about averages over long periods. And we should remember that during the middle of the last ice age, the Earth was on average only 5 degrees cooler than it has been in the industrial era. And then New York was one mile under ice. So we're talking about a dramatic change in the conditions of life on planet Earth. And one of the reasons why I got out of economics is because I saw that it, that it, it dealt with, uh, with a very narrow set of what human beings do. And this instance of the Anthropocene, I think, is a very nice illustration. I was at the Byron Bay Writers Festival two weeks ago doing a panel with Ross Gittins, and he brought up this old thing that you know we've talked about for years where the economy should be thought of as a kind of circle inside a bigger circle which represents a natural environment. And I said, well, that may have been the case in the Holocene, but in the Anthropocene, that smaller circle of the economy has actually expanded to occupy the whole of the larger circle. Every cubic metre of air, every cubic metre of sea, every hectare or square metre of earth on the planet now has a human imprint. There is nowhere you can go where you will not see the imprint of human beings. And Clive, um, one of the reasons I invited you onto this panel was I heard you giving a talk on ABC Radio National and you refer to a thing called, I think it's biomass and the number of kilos of humans. If you add up all the number of kilos of humans across the planet, and I think the number was something like 19, 20% or something like that, and you took all the domestic animals... And it was in the order of, and I should have written the numbers down, but uh, 60 or 70 or something percent. And all up, if you take humans plus our cows, our sheep, our dogs, 
uh, we had up to 80, 89% or something like that. It was, it's, uh, it's a daunting number. Yeah, if you add up, you know, if you, if you add up the dry weight of all terrestrial vertebrates, um, brilliant co- uh, calculation done by a, a Canadian called Barclad Smill, um, he worked out that uh, uh, human beings... Um, plus the domesticated animals that service cows, cattle, pigs, chickens, the whole works, account for 97% of that weight, that mass. And wild animals account for 3%. So when you watch those David Attenborough documentaries, those vast, you know, herds of wildebeest uh, across the, the, the belt and so on, you think, ah, wildlife, fantastic. 3%. They account for, and, our, and we, our cows, our sheep, our chickens, and so on, we account for ninety-seven percent. Now, uh, soil—if soil's a bit invisible to a lot of us—I think another thing that tends to be invisible is energy, right? So, if we cut the energy to this room in here, all well, the lights will go out. You wouldn't hear me. You wouldn't hear us. We wouldn't be recording. The air conditioning would go off. We couldn't drive home. Uh, I wouldn't have this pen in my hand because I wouldn't have been able to pick it up because I wouldn't have had breakfast. It all comes down to energy. And uh, Stephen Bygrave, would you say that uh, the the role of energy in our civilization is undervalued and such a critical part, along with soils and the human systems, to uh, solving our problems? Absolutely. So, so energy is, is uh, another reason why civilization has, has flourished, and not only through the agricultural revolutions that we've seen over the last 10,000 years, but also because of the availability of cheap but dirty fuels called fossil fuels. And they have been potentially wonderful for humanity up until maybe a few decades ago, if not earlier, but they're certainly not good for humanity anymore. And the other thing is we have the technologies now which are clean, and cheap and green, uh, which can power our societies. And, and um, obviously, as I mentioned before, renewables actually are, new renewables are cheaper than new coal and new gas. And uh, they're flourishing throughout the world. I think Australia has one of the highest penetrations of rooftop solar in the world. I was visiting the IEA in, overseas recently and they said, why is it, Stephen, that your Prime Minister is... Um, so anti-renewables, yet you've got the highest penetration of renewables uh, at a household level in, in the world, one of the highest. And um, the fact is that people actually just want to get on with it. Technology, as Clive mentioned, there are geo-engineering fixes, but technologies such as renewable energy, high-speed rail, electric vehicles, um, energy-efficient buildings actually will get us through. These are existing technologies. We don't have to wait for these geo-engineering in geoengineering solutions, which are actually just an excuse for delay and, and, as, and as we'll mention, actually won't fix the problem. I think technology, the issue with technology too is it, it, it can remove us from the problem. Technology is both a solution and a barrier and um, if we use it wisely, there, are, there is a human side to technology. There's, I describe it as the software versus the hardware. If we get the human side of technology right how we manage technology, how we use, use it and focus on our real needs, then it can be a way forward for humanity uh, to save humanity. Um, Michael mentioned uh, soils and, and the valuable role of soils and, and the role of farmers as custodians on our land. I, I agree with that entirely. In fact, farmers are probably the most connected 
with their land, with where their food comes from. Um, the farmers we've spoken to are actually doing things like planting trees, recycling nutrients, implementing things like zero tillage, um, reducing the amount of chemicals and fertilisers they need on their land because it, it actually improves their livelihood, it improves their microclimate, it reduces their costs, and uh, they also just want to get on with it. Now, uh, I've made some interesting comments about um, you boys will just go out to the back room and you'll, you know, you smart people work out some kind of fix for us, you know, the, the, the techno fix, as you call it, Clive. Now, I uh, solicited uh, some questions from uh, high schools around Canberra and uh, Angela Lau from uh, Radford College. I'm not sure if you're here, Angela, but uh, she's asked about the public perception of science and the geofix is one of them. But, uh, Will, Stefan here, you've also had a lot to do with this because you've been out there in the public debate. You've even had an interview with the famous Alan Jones uh, about uh, global warming and is it real and so on. So how are you finding the, the public perception of science? Yeah, a couple of issues here. One is... Um, for a lot of people, science is fine as long as it's developing new widgets or gadgets or things to make it let us live longer and so on. But when, once it starts challenging the way we're living and the way we're thinking, then it becomes more difficult for people to accept. Second point I'd make is that uh, I do a lot of work around the world, particularly in Scandinavia. And in those countries, because they've taken a bipartisan or nonpartisan approach to climate change, the science is far more accepted. So it's pretty clear that once... The, an issue, a scientific issue, whether it's this one or whether it's GMOs or whatever, uh, gets uh, thrown into, into the politics as a political football, it then tends to get interpreted by people's ideologies or their political beliefs. And that really makes it difficult to have a sensible discussion about the important issues, issues that everyone on this panel has been talking about. So unfortunately, Australia has suffered very badly from, from that effect. And uh, I don't know the solution to this, but if we can somehow get this back onto a bipartisan approach, uh, we'll make a lot better progress. Could I perhaps um, invite any of you to uh, offer an answer to this question about our, the way forward is not just scientific thinking, but it's a blend, is it not, of ethical thinking, of uh, religious thinking perhaps, or economic thinking, that a solution for it to work, for it to be viable, has to accommodate all of those facets. Does one of you want to pick up that question? And while, while you're thinking about your answer, uh, we might uh, open up the forum if you have a question. We have some roving mics somewhere. Uh, I get one of my fuzzy logic helpers here and uh, up the back there. And uh, so did one of you pick, want to pick up on that point, perhaps, Clive? Well, I just want to um, remind us all of the extraordinary importance of the uh, encyclical Laudato Si by Pope Francis. And one of the many interesting things about it is that uh, Pope Francis um, has been advised, as several popes, uh, uh, two or three popes before him have been, by a very highly regarded and respected body of scientists in the, uh, I guess it's called the um, Pontifical Scientific Academy or something like that, who've been producing reports in the back and for um, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And the interesting thing about Pope Francis's encyclical is that he completely gets the science. There's not, no questioning, undermining, fuzzy, there's no mixing of the science, but of course um, the scientific uh, conclusions have profound 
most profound ethical and religious uh, implications because they tell us something extremely important about how we should regard Mother Earth, as he calls it, borrowing uh, the phrase from um, St. Francis. So I think that is, has been an exceptionally important intervention, uh, one uh, perhaps carefully timed uh, to unfold in its impact over uh, the period leading up to the, uh, the important Paris conference in yeah, early yeah. December. Archie, the new call, the new gas. So if, if I might just quick, I've got a little spin on what uh, Clive was saying before we throw to the question down the front here. Um, my take on the word science in this panel isn't necessarily a bit of technology. It isn't a fix. It's, it's a way of thinking, critical thinking. It's a way of saying, does this solution actually work? Am I actually wrong? So Karl Popper came up with his so-called null hypothesis and it is the duty of every scientist to try and find themselves wrong. Uh, when did you last find a politician who did that? <laughs> now, uh, we have a question down the front here. Uh, the name's Albert White. And uh, I think this particular issue proves beyond doubt that politicians in the situation are redundant. Democracy, I think, is a spent force, as far as we can see, because nothing is changing in either of those two areas. What we have is we have globalised, tax-evading capital roaming the world and exploiting the extractive industries and making a, a nice profit out of it, and the shareholders are quite happy with what's going on. Until such time as either the people, which has happened, which is Will was mentioned in terms of, or sorry, Stephen was mentioning in terms of the people moving ahead of the, of the political thought, unless we can act, the, the scientists can actually convince the business fraternity that there is more money to be made from using a clean energy model we will not get any movement. As it is, they're making so much money polluting the atmosphere that they couldn't give us stuff. And because the politicians are just their, are just their handmaidens, nothing is going to change. Uh, that, that, that could be a whole panel on its own, I think. And uh, <laughs> the question would be, is, is the system broken, the very system that, <clears throat> excuse me, that we live in? Our economic quickly, and our political yeah. system. Can I just comment quickly, though, because I think the question is um, what can be done in the absence of political leadership? And there's actually a, a lot. We're working with Byron Bay, um, Byron Bay Council. Uh, Byron Bay, the Mayor of Byron Bay, has committed uh, Byron Region to be Australia's first zero emissions community in 10 years. So we've got a community groundswell of activity that you know the community just wants to get on with, that they want to get on with cleaner forms of transport, cleaner, cleaner forms of agriculture, cleaner forms of energy. We've got Australia's first community-owned retailer in, uh, in Byron Bay. They are looking to source renewables from households, from community projects in the region, but also outside the region, and provide that clean energy to, to, to households and consumers. So I think what we're seeing in the absence of political leadership is a groundswell of action uh, both at the individual level and at the, and at the household and at the community level, and also businesses who also can see the opportunities from energy efficiency, rooftop solar. Well, that's actually a, a, a good uh, leading to a, a thought that I've had for this panel now. Uh, when I was thinking about how we were going to set this up, and it, you know, it's a big question, can science save humanity? Like, are we all really screwed? Is it really that bad? But what I would really hate for us to all leave this room and say, that's it. 
party. Let's have a backyard blitz, let's go and do the cooking stuff, and we're screwed. So it doesn't matter what I do. Well, I was having this conversation with an old friend of my dad, uh, and, 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 he, and I was feeling depressed, and he said, there was a bloke who was a spy in the Japanese embassy during World War II, and he got wind of the fact that the Chinese were pulling their forces out of northern China, out of Manchuria, towards the south, preparing for an invasion of the Pacific. And he sent that trans- he transmitted that intelligence to the uh, Allied High Command and to the Russians. And the Russians then pulled their forces back from the, from the west towards the east to meet the incoming German invasion. Now, it's a bit much to say it was one person, but... You don't know what effect you have. We all have an influence. And you never know what that influence might be. We are not necessarily powerless. And uh, Stephen has now referred to uh, community-level action. It's up to you and me and all of us to help us solve this problem. That was my little motivational speech, and we have, oh, we have lots of hands going up. We have uh, Jenny Goldie down the front here. You said that... Um uh, we had to stop deforestation immediately for climate change reasons, but uh, between now and mid-century, we're going to have another 2.4 billion people. By the end of the century, another 4 billion people. Now, how are you going to increase yields to feed all those people? Yes, certainly a lot of deforestation actually occurs for uh, meat production um, and, and also for, for, for cropping. Um, there are replacements for, for meat and there are some much uh, less emissions-intensive sources of meat than red meat. Look, I'm not advocating or, or saying everyone should go vegetarian tomorrow, but I'm just saying that um, red meat and the beef industry is probably the most emissions-intensive industry in Australia, more so than aluminium and, uh, and, and steel production. Um, we, we do have replacements. A lot of farmers we've been talking to are very interested in revegetating their land. In fact, revegetation offers an opportunity, instead of uh, regional towns becoming ghost towns, which many are becoming now, to revitalise uh, rural areas, to provide alternative revenue streams. A lot of farmers are looking at the carbon farming initiative and planting trees and earning money from, from planting trees. Um, and uh, you know we can be much more efficient with what we do with our food too, in terms of valuating rather than just exporting live cattle, for example. Oh, we have a chance. One last question from. The... I've been hearing the statement or the comment about new coal for a while, and today I've heard about new wind. I didn't realise the wind had changed. Could you please explain that to me? Yeah, so if we were to rebuild or start from scratch and, and, and build our electricity system right now today, we would not build it with coal and we would not build it with gas. So all new installations we would build with new renewables, new solar, new wind, because they are cheaper than building new coal. So if we were to build a new coal-fired power plant, power plant or a new gas-fired power plant, it would be cheaper to build a new wind farm, new solar solar photovoltaic or solar thermal. We've passed the threshold on this question. It's time now to wind up our panel, and I might invite each of you just to give a really, say, if you can give a 30-second summary, can you, can you say what you think of this question in 30 seconds, and who wants to start with that one? Uh, Clive is... I'm sympathetic to the analysis of our friend here about the corruption of the democratic process, which has been profound and 
extremely worrying. Global corporations are rampaging around the world and, and asserting their will in a way that they haven't done before, and we're going to see an extension of that with the free trade agreement in, uh, in, in Australia, should it go ahead, it seems likely. However, when we're looking for the ways in which the political process and democracy can resist this, we need to look no further than the ACT. 90% renewable energy by 2020, and we hear now it's going to be 100% by 2025, uh, is perfectly doable. It's perfectly affordable. And in a, um, in a polity such as that of the ACT, with the support of citizens, we can go to uh, zero energy, uh, zero emissions electricity systems in, in very short order. Get off your backsides. OK, uh, who next? We're going to have uh, closing comments. We'll go down the, go down the table. Yeah. Um, look, look uh, technology uh, and science can save humanity. Um, the question is, will, will we save ourselves? Um, that requires individual action, community action, and business action, and as well as political action. We, we can do it. Uh, I've outlined a range of ways we can do it across every sector of the economy. Labor's announced a 50% renewable energy target by 2030. That just keeps the current rate of renewables growth as it is now. So it's easily we can easily hit 50% renewables by 2030, so we should be setting more ambitious targets than that. 50% is easy. We were going to hit 28% by 2020, and the government watered the renewable energy target down, but we could have easily hit 28% by 2020. So we can do it. Electric vehicles, high-speed rail, all these technologies do exist right now. We, can just, uh, we just have to get on with it. I'd like to say, or we'll quote uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the nation that destroys its soil destroys itself. And I think we need to fundamentally understand that everything that, that relates to human survival comes from the soil. Our food, our fibre, our water, a lot of our engineer, uh, a lot of our uh, uh, energy and so on. So it seems axiomatic to me that uh, if we want to cater for expanding populations in uh, any uh, sustainable way, we've got to get back to the basics of looking after the uh, soil. In the process, it will also have a very positive impact in helping us to adjust to the climate change issues that have been uh, put up, no, no small part being through uh, increasing the transpiration and small water cycles, which uh, uh, provide about 70%, or used to provide about 70% of our rain, probably provide about 40 or 50% per now. So look after the soil properly, and I think we'll solve a lot of the issues. Thanks. Um, look, last week Tony Abbott said that he wasn't going to prioritise the environment over the economy, and my question for him is, well, why not? That seems like a very sensible thing to do. The environment can exist very nicely without the economy, but the economy can't actually exist without the environment. Um, and that brings me to, to sort of a final point, and I'm actually going to quote... Um, here the late Professor Tony McMichael, who spent decades accumulating evidence on the impacts of climate change on human health. He said, Population health is not a sideshow to the main event. In the long run, it is the main event. Why else do we want an economy, security, social cohesion and material comfort? Yeah, I've talked a little bit about tipping elements in the Earth system, and there are certainly tipping elements in the human part of the Earth system. Uh, and we see signs that we're approaching one, the rollout of, of renewable energy, I think it's almost becoming unstoppable. We've got some political constraints. But I think hopefully in the next five years we'll see a tipping element in terms of 
human action on this issue. And we'll look back 15 years from now and say, why did it seem so hard? So the next five years, indeed, this is the critical decade. And uh, I would like to quote the great cellist Pablo Casals, who said, the situation is hopeless. We must take the next step. And with that, I'd like to thank you all very much for coming here today. And a big thank you, a big thank you to our panellists. And what what a fascinating and important topic. I can't think of something more important at the moment. Thank you very much.